I'm going to open the scriptures to Genesis chapter 32 tonight. We finished up our James series last week, and we're starting a series on the book of Revelation in a couple weeks. And you know, with it seeming like the world is coming to an end, what better series could you start than Revelation? It is truly going to be amazing. I know that Revelation is one of those books that either people are just overly fanatical about or they don't touch it because they're scared of it, but Revelation preaches the gospel. And we are personally, as a teaching team, we're so excited to drill down into those texts and to show you how at the center of each one of them, the heartbeat of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit just throbs. So I think it might be going too far to say we're taking Revelation back. But I'll go ahead and say it. We're taking Revelation back. It's going to be good. So that starts in a couple weeks. Tonight, I just have a one-off message I want to give you tonight. That's something that was on my heart. So this is Genesis chapter 32, and we're going to start in verse 22. And so, Lord, we pray that tonight that you would bless the preaching of your word. We thank you that all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God, the child of God, can be perfectly equipped for every good work. And so we pray that you administer the scriptures to our souls, to our bodies, to our minds, to our spirits. We pray that by them you would renew our minds, that by them you would renew our hearts, and by them you would make our bodies strong for faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Do that tonight. Bless the preaching of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would allow my mind tonight to be bathed in the reality and the wonder of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I pray that, uh, I pray that the words of my mouth, the preacher's mouth tonight, and the meditation of the hearer's hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives and his two female servants and his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. And so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go. For it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. And the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask me my name? And then he blessed him there. And so Jacob called the place Peniel, which means the face of God, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Verse 31, the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said that Jacob is the younger of two sons. You might remember the story. You have Abraham, the father of the faith. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah, and she gets pregnant, and she's pregnant with twins. And when the time comes for the twins to be delivered, Esau comes first. Esau is the oldest of the two, but not far behind. In fact, hard on the heels, pun intended, 
is Jacob. Jacob actually comes out of Rebekah's womb grasping the heel of his brother Esau. And that becomes something of a picture for Jacob's life, that Jacob is the kind of guy who's always sort of grasping at the heel to get ahead. Jacob literally means that. In fact, the word, the name Jacob, uh, means something like he deceives. And so that image of him grasping at the heel became something of a picture for his whole life. And really, as Jacob's life unfolds, you see that that becomes a sort of prophecy for him. One day, Esau is out hunting, and Jacob was a more domestic fellow. So Jacob is home one day, and he's cooking some lentil stew. And Esau, the oldest, comes in from the country, and he's famished. And he sees Jacob cooking the stew. And he says, man, I'm just, I'm famished. Would you share with me some of the soup? And Jacob sees an opportunity. He says, I'll give you some of this stew if you sell me the birthright the birthright. The birthright puts him in a position to receive the father's inheritance when Isaac passes away. And Esau, who's so famished, he can't pass up this deal, even though it's completely imbalanced in Jacob's direction. Esau takes him up on it and sells his birthright to Jacob for this mess of, of porridge. Jacob uses deceit, the trickery to get ahead. He doesn't sort of face life the way that he ought to, but he kind of works angles. Later on in the text of Genesis, as Isaac is getting ready to die, Isaac calls Esau to his side and says, Esau, I'm getting ready to pass away, and I want to lay my hands on you and pray the Father's blessing upon you. But first, before I do that, would you go out and would you catch some wild game and then come back in and make me some of that tasty food that I like? And so Esau does that. And Rebecca, who loves Jacob more than Esau, sees an opportunity. Do you remember the story? She sees an opportunity And she says, Jacob, here's what you're going to do. I'm going to give you some food that you're going to take to your dad. And I'm going to dress you up in some of your brother's clothes. And you guys, your voices are real similar. And so you're going to go in and you're going to get the blessing from Father Isaac instead of Esau. And sure enough, he follows through on the plan. And the blessing, the blessing of God that started with Abraham and was passed to Isaac now is passed to Jacob. And when Esau comes in and realizes that he's been tricked, he is irate. And the scripture says that Esau said to himself, I'm just going to wait until Isaac is dead. And as soon as Isaac is dead, I'm going to go out and I'm going to find Jacob and I am going to kill Jacob. And from that moment on, the lives of the two boys went in starkly different directions. They'd been estranged for many years. And now here in this text, they're on the threshold of a meeting. Imagine if you'd had that kind of a falling out with somebody in your family, how much fear and trepidation you would carry into a reunion moment, wouldn't you? Your whole soul would just be troubled. And so here, before he's getting ready to face his brother Esau, and he doesn't know what he's going to walk into, the scripture has this moment where he sends everybody ahead of him, and he's all alone. And he wrestles with the man till daybreak. And he doesn't know, as he's wrestling, he doesn't know who he's wrestling with, but there is this jostling, this jockeying back and forth. And Jacob, who had been the deceiver all of his life, all of a sudden is starting to rise up in his strength. And in fact, the man says to him, hey, let me go. And Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And somehow in that interaction with this man, he finds out that he's not just interacting with an angel, but he's actually interacting with the living God that he receives this blessing from God and his name is changed from Jacob to Israel, which means he struggles, he struggles. That there is this moment of transformation and this 
moment of blessing that takes place in Jacob's life because he engages. And in fact, at the end of the narrative, he realizes again that he wasn't just wrestling with man and he wasn't just wrestling with an angel, but he was actually wrestling with the living God. And he came out, listen to me, he came out better for it. He came out better for it. He jostled with God. He jockeyed with God. And he came out better for it. And that story fascinates me. And it's fascinated believers for thousands of years now because it shows us something fascinating and I think unexpected in God. What, I wonder, does it say about God that this story is included in the canon, this highly unusual story? What does it say about God that this story is included in the canon? And what does it say about us that this story is included in the canon? That's the question that I want to explore tonight for just a few minutes. What does it say about God that this story is here? And what does it say about us at at a minimum level? The story, I think, defies the usual ways that we think about God. In our modern time, many people think about God as a sort of distant autocrat, that God is sort of a heavenly potentate, a king, and up in the sky somewhere, and he's handing down decisions through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, through intermediaries, angels, and then pastors and law keepers and all of that stuff. But God is somewhere way up there. He's a distant autocrat. He cannot be approached. He's not that interested in your life. He's not that concerned. The things that burden you don't really burden him. What he's doing is he's just kind of the Wizard of Oz, you know? He's sort of sitting behind the curtain and he's pushing buttons and he's pulling levers and he's kind of making things go, but you don't really want to approach this guy. We treat God as a distant autocrat, many of us do. Many of us, if we don't treat him as a distant autocrat, we treat God as an oversensitive tyrant, okay? That God is just, he's got kind of a fragile ego. Watch out. You don't want to get up in God's face too much. You know, you don't want to offend God when you're in the king's court. Just please watch your language and watch what you say and watch what you do because uh, we know that God's got quite a trigger. And if you tick him off, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen. That God is this oversensitive tyrant, distant autocrat, oversensitive tyrant. The third thing, if we don't think about God that way, that many of us think about God as an indifferent metaphysical substance, you know, that he is that by which all things are, but he cannot be approached and he's not really personal. He's more a sort of numinous vapor or a cloud or something out there. He's our metaphysical environment in some way that he doesn't really have much of a personality, you know, because a metaphysical substance, does, substance doesn't have much of a personality. We think about God in, in those ways, and that's not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is personhood. He's the very definition of personhood. And when he invites us into relationship with him, that relationship and the texture of that relationship, as we see it unfold in Scripture, it may surprise you how, how much God invites us into relationship with him. I think about, when I think about the sort of mutuality that God invites us into, I always think about uh, God and Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. You might remember the story. God comes to Abraham and says, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah over there, the outcry against them has reached me and now I'm coming down and I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham, plucky Abraham, who's got a history with God, gets up in God's face about it. 
Now Abraham says, yeah, God, I hear you, I hear you, judge of all the earth. You're a good judge, but will not the judge of all the earth do right? What if there are 50 people, God, in Sodom? Are you telling me that you're gonna wipe out the whole city and not regard those 50 people that live there? But surely, that, surely that's outside of your character, God. And the Lord says, okay, if I find 50 righteous people there, I'm gonna spare the city. And Abraham goes, God, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Hey, while I've got you on the line, if you find 45 people there, will you spare the city? The Lord says, sure, for 45 people, I'll spare the city. Abraham says, thank you. You're such a merciful God. Hey, while, while, while we're at it, would you consider for 40 people, if you found 40 people there, would you spare the city for 40 people? The Lord says, sure. Abraham says, for 30? The Lord says, sure. Abraham says, 20? The Lord says, sure. Abraham says, okay, hey, while I've got you, if you find 10, Lord, will you spare the city on account of 10 people? And the Lord says, absolutely. Abraham bargains with God. I don't know if that strikes you as unusual, but it strikes me as unusual. That God seems to welcome it. God seems to invite it. He's not the distant autocrat, and he's not the oversensitive tyrant, and he's not an indifferent metaphysical substance. But what God is, is the God who welcomes this, who invites this, who actually allows the unfolding of covenant history to ride on those genuine, mutual, interpersonal exchanges. Brothers and sisters, this is our, our God. Exodus chapter 32, Moses has been up on the mountain receiving the 10 commandments, hearing from the voice of God for the people, and the people prostitute themselves to foreign gods. They make a bale, they throw their gold into the fire, and they fashion a calf, and they start worshiping it. And you might remember the story that the Lord was upset with the people, and he says in Exodus 32 and verse nine, I have seen these people, the Lord says to Moses, and they're a stiff-necked people, so leave me alone now so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them, and then I will make you into a great nation. God rushes up to the line of destruction with his people, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he says, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt? with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? This is what Moses says. So God, turn. But literally, he's calling God to repent. God, would you make a 180 degree turn from what you're about to do, Lord God? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent, O oh God, of this thing that you're planning on carrying out. Please don't do it. Don't bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land that I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. What does the text say in verse 14, brothers and sisters? Then the Lord, he relented, and he did not bring on his people the disaster he threatened. But what does Moses do to God? Moses says, God, don't you remember? Remember Abraham, oh God. Remember Isaac, oh God. Remember Jacob, whose name became Israel in Genesis 32. Remember, God, remember the promises that you've made. Remember how you have staked your reputation on these people and their existence. Remember them, oh God, and this thing that you're about to do, oh God, will ruin your reputation, and I, I can't let you do that, oh Lord. And the Lord determines to change his course 
from one course to the next on account of a person getting all up in his business. This is our God. This is our God, not a distant autocrat. He's not an oversensitive tyrant. He's not a distant, indifferent, metaphysical substance. He is the living God, and he invites us to be in relationship with him. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 44. I don't have this up on the screen, but I want to show you this psalm. But The psalmist says, We have heard with our ears, O God, what our ancestors have told us, what you did in their days and days long ago. With your hand, O God, you drove out the nations, and you planted our ancestors, and you crushed the peoples, and you made our ancestors flourish. You are my king and my God who decrees victories for Jacob through you. He says, we push back our enemies. Through your name, we trample our foes. And God, he says, we make our boast all day long and we will praise your name forever. The psalmist is saying, you've been faithful to our people in the past and you've been faithful to me now and I'm committed to you right now. But then he goes on, he says, but now you have rejected us and humbled us and you're no longer going out with our armies. But you've made us retreat before the enemy. Our adversaries have plundered us, but you gave us up, oh God. Listen to how he talks to God. He's not saying that, hey, this thing happened, but I don't want to really accuse you. He says, you gave us up, oh God, to be devoured like sheep and scattered us among the nations. And you sold your people, he says, for a pittance. And you gain nothing from their sale. You have made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a, a byword, a mockery among the nations. The people shake their heads at us. I live in disgrace all day long. And my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. He says, all this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you. It would have been one thing, oh God, if we turned our backs on you and now we're experiencing all of this, but we've been faithful to you and you haven't been faithful to us. Our hearts hadn't turned back, our feet hadn't strayed from your path, but you crushed us and you made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. Awake, O oh Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself, don't reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We're brought down to the dust, our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us, he says. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. Brothers and sisters, the covenant God is the God who invites this kind of interaction. The psalmist says, I've been more faithful to the covenant even than you have, O God. And he's not struck dead with a thunderbolt. What does that say about the God that we worship? From beginning to end, we are told that the God of the Bible is the covenant God, brothers and sisters. He's the covenant God. And he wants us to be entirely in relationship with him. And he wants us to be entirely in relationship with him and him, us. You see the mutuality. God is not calling us to mute ourselves or diminish ourselves to be in relationship with him. Can I get an amen? But God is calling us to rise up into all that we are and all he's made us to be. He wants us as the very people we are with all of our pain with all of our joy, with all of our passion, with all of our love, with all of our heartache, with all of our pity, with all of our confusion, all of it. And when God chooses us, he chooses all of us. When he says yes to us, he says yes to all of us. He says, I, I want all that you are. It's all that I am for all that you are. That's the interaction that, that he's called us into. That's the interaction that we have with the living God, I told you, Mandy and I, a week from tonight, actually, we'll be celebrating 20 years of being married. And I remember, um, I can remember uh, those early days of our marriage, those early days of our marriage. You know, when we were dating, we started dating, uh, I was 16 going on 17. 
Mandy was much older at the time. She was 18, that's true. She's a year and three months older. So for a time there, I was a 16-year-old dating an 18-year-old. I thought that was pretty great. But we had such a happy and wonderful dating relationship. It was hunky-dory and everything. It was just sweet and nice and amazing all the time. And then we had a wonderful wedding. It was so beautiful. And we went on a honeymoon and it was just delightful. And then the marriage started. And I can remember those first couple years, especially that first year, the way that we were just squabbling with each other all the time. We could not figure out how to get on the same page with each other. And I, I just remember thinking, about it. I remember having this thought, like, Lord, our dating relationship is so, it's been say was so happy, but how is it that marriage has ruined our relationship? You know, it's falling apart, God. The happy little interaction that we had before, it's all gone to pieces. Now we're squabbling, we're fighting, we're at each other's throats and we can't figure out how to get on the same page. We're so stressed out and frustrated and freaked out by all of that. And what I know now that I did not know then is that just at that moment, that conflictual place that we were in with each other, we were just then beginning to have a relationship with each other. The conflict arises as your personhood arises in the relationship. You start going, well, wait, what are you doing there? And what are you doing? Well, what is that all about? And I don't understand how what you're saying there and what you've done over here line up with one another. And maybe it was just that when we were dating, we were just so, uh, so eager to please one another that we didn't actually show all of the parts of who we were. Now you get married and all of a sudden it's time to start really showing up. And that showing up sometimes sparks fly in that sometimes sparks fly. And now I look back on all of that and I go, actually every one of those moments that we've had as a married couple where the sparks started to fly, the reason that they were flying was because we were making a decision to show up with one another. And always on the other side of that conflict, what happens is we break through into fresh intimacy. We break through into fresh intimacy. And I'm saying to you tonight that when the scriptures talk about our relationship with the living God, we're not just little subjects in God's vast kingdom. Oh, you people down there, you just obey the rules and just do what I've told you to do. And don't bother me, please, because I'm the king way up here and I can't, I can't be bothered with all of your stuff. The highest metaphor that the scripture uses to talk about our relationship with the living God is it says that we are the bride. We're the bride of Christ we're the bride of Christ. And that means that God wants us fully present inside the relationship with him. Not just trying to say the things that we think that he wants us to hear or trying to keep him happy, but he wants us to show up with all of our pain and with all of our passion and with all of our pity and with all of our heartache, with all of our frustration. God, I'm saying to you, is inviting that And to the extent that we take him up on the offer is the extent to which we will know the intimacy of God. Can you receive that tonight? Can you receive that tonight? You've seen it in your relationships. I've seen it in my relationships with other people. I've also seen it in my own relationship with God, and I've watched it in other people's relationship with God. I remember a good friend of mine years ago went through a terrible, terrible time. The woman that he was married to made awful decisions, her life went off the rails. They had a number of kids at the time. And because of her awful decisions, he was saddled with having to take care of the kids, provide for the kids, while she's off in the far country. 
And her decisions got worse and worse and worse, and this went on for years and years, an ongoing trauma to the family. And finally, her decisions led her not just in the far country, but she passed away. She died from her decisions, lost her life. And it was such a blow to him because he loved her and he wanted her back and he wanted restoration. And he believed, as we all believe, that our God is the God who goes into the far country, that he seeks the lost sheep. He's the God of reconciliation. He's the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. He was heartbroken and grieved and mad and frustrated and angry. And he went through a process of grieving for about a year. And I watched him, high highs and low lows, up and down, all of that. The process of grief you cannot avoid. And we caught up over lunch one day. I hadn't seen him in a while. And when we sat down at the table, I saw a light in his eyes in a way that I had not seen it in a very long time. And I said, man, you look great. Like, you just look great. Now tell me what's going on with you. He said, Andrew, I had it out with God. So you had it out with God. What happened? He said, well, I was just so, I had all of this stuff. And I was so angry and I was so heartbroken and I was so frustrated. He said, so I asked my folks to watch the kids one night. I just needed a night alone. Me and God, we were gonna have it out. He said, so I poured out my heart to the Lord, gave him everything that I had, all of my heartache, all of my frustration, and all of my disappointment. Why didn't you save her? Why didn't you bring her back? Why didn't you restore her? How could you have left me like this? He said, I poured out my heart before the Lord. I filled up a journal with my anger at the Lord and my frustration with the Lord. I I let God have it. I let her rip. I gave God everything I possibly could. I said, what did God do? Did you sense him say anything? He said, yeah. I sensed the Lord say to me, is that all you've got? And he said, at that moment, hearing the Lord say, is that all you've got? When my heart, all of a sudden, all that toxicity was out, he said, all of a sudden, the love of God filled me in a way that I had never experienced the love of God before. That stuff is washed out. He said, I know God in a way that I didn't know him before. But it makes sense, guys. Because you know what happened? He showed up. He showed up. But there's so many of us who follow God and we complain that we don't sense God and we don't experience God and we don't know the love of God. We've experienced it in this area or that area, but there are these vast places where we don't know intimacy with God. And I want to suggest to you that it's because you haven't let God shine a light on them. And they're actually the very areas that God wants to speak to and he wants to touch and he wants to heal. And some of those areas are areas in which you are frustrated with God himself, but you've been too afraid to bring it up. You think that he's going to be mad. You think that the relationship's going to break down. You think that if you say something like that, if you, give, if you vocalize your frustrations, that you're going to lose your faith. If you could lose it, it wasn't a faith worth having. God can take it. God wants it. He wants all of you. Not just the nice parts of you, not just the Christian parts of you, but he wants the atheist parts of you and the agnostic parts of you, and I don't believe in this parts of you. He wants all of that. And when you let him, when you lay it out before the Lord and let him shine his light on them, I'm telling you, experience the love of God. The Lord, brothers and sisters, is calling calling us to show up in our relationship with him, to break through the inertia of fear into the intimacy of faith. And it's gonna require that we start getting honest with God. We start telling the truth. When I first took the job here three years ago, I got some time with Garvin McCarroll. Garvin, McCarroll. Garvin 
came with Pastor Brady when Pastor Brady took over the pastorate here. Garvin was his right-hand man for a number of years and is on our elder team still, stepped down, retired two and a half years ago, and Garvin is a man of God. We got a lunch together, and Garvin let me kind of know what the Spirit was doing at New Life. It was such an enriching time together, and we went headed back to the office, and, and he said, you know, I want to say something to you, and I hope that you never forget it. He said, Andrew, aren't the shortest distance between two people is the truth. Don't ever forget that. And I couldn't figure out why he was saying it to me, but it stayed with me every day since. The shortest distance between two people is the truth. That there are times that I get into a place, either with Mandy or other people that I'm close to, where it starts feeling a little bit distance, and I know because of what Garvin said, that the shortest distance back is somehow I've gotta open my chest and I've gotta say what's really in there. And there's something about doing that that we reestablish contact with one another. And there are times that my relationship with God gets moribund. It just gets a little bit dead. It gets a little bit stale. And the solution is always the same. What needs to happen is that I need to drill down into the center of who I am and start speaking truthfully to God. Again, it turns out that that wisdom of Garvin's is ancient wisdom. Abba Poyamen, one of the desert fathers, said, teach your mouth to say what is in your heart. Teach your mouth to say what is in your heart. But don't just let it be hidden over here and don't hide it away from the living God because the living God wants it. He made those things that are in you. He made your emotions. He made your capacity for frustration. He made your fear. He made your hope. He made your heartache. If you surrender it to him, you'll touch his life and his goodness. And the good news for us is that we don't have to hide from the living God. And we know this because God took a body God became a human being. And in the human being who is God, Jesus of Nazareth, we see the full range of human emotion on display. Jesus expresses his anger and Jesus expresses his heartache and Jesus expresses his fear in the garden of Gethsemane. God, if there's any other way, I don't want to take this path. Nevertheless, let thy will be done. We see Jesus on the cross even feeling abandoned and forsaken by God. My father, where are you? gives expression to all of those things. And one of the things that I think that we forget in Christianity is that our emotional life, and I want you to hear this tonight, Jesus is the fully human one, not just the truly human one, but he's the fully human one who expresses the full range of human emotions. And one of the things that we forget in Christianity is that our emotions are a seamless garment. They're a tapestry. Do you know that your sorrow comes from the same place as your joy? Do you know that heartache comes from the same place as hope? Do you know that love comes from the same place as frustration? And do you know that if you deny these things over here and you don't give voice to them, you'll also deny these other things? Some of you, your relationship with God is just dead as a doornail and it's because you've been dishonest. You've allowed things to become polite and you didn't have to. You didn't have to because God took a body And in the body of Jesus Christ on the cross, God, the human one, shook his fist at God and said, where did you go? And God exalted him to his right hand and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. God can be trusted with our hearts. The Father is willing to receive it, and the Son, the truly human one, helps us give it. 
It's time to break through inertia and get back into the intimacy of union with God. Can you receive that tonight, brothers and sisters? Let's stand to our feet tonight. Let's stand to our feet. And now as we prepare our hearts for communion, we begin to teach our mouths to say what is in our hearts. And I want you now to begin to just let the Spirit search your life. As I've been preaching tonight, I'm sure that there are areas that you have been thinking of that you have not been honest with God about. It's time now just to begin to express your heart to the Lord. It's time to express your love for the Lord. Maybe there are places of adoration that you haven't given voices to, a voice to, but I'm thinking that there are probably some places of frustration and fear and discouragement places where you feel like God let you down that you haven't expressed. I want you to just let those things begin to flow to the surface and let the Spirit begin to enable you to speak those things to the Lord. And I want you just in your own way, under your breath, just begin to give voice to those things. And so, Lord, tonight we allow you to search us and know us. And you already have. You know what's in us. You know our fear. You know our frustration. You know the places where we feel let down and abandoned and forsaken by you. And I pray that tonight you would allow us to bring those things to the surface and and to put them in your presence, to get it all out on the table. And the truth is that the reason that we haven't fully expressed these things or yielded these things over to you is because we didn't trust you. We didn't trust you. We didn't trust that you were as good as the scripture says you were. We didn't trust that you were as kind as the scripture says you are. We didn't trust that you were the covenant God. We didn't trust that you were our bridegroom who wanted all of us. We didn't trust you. We believed a lie. We believed that you were evil. We believed that you were some admixture of good and evil. We believed that you were a petty tyrant. We believed that you were distant. We believed lies about you. Tonight I'm asking that you'd heal the lie. And I'm asking that you'd help us love you again with our whole heart and our whole soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. Return us again to the love of God.